You are listening to another exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. I'm J.D. Fascinetti. Welcome, everyone. Today, I'm delighted to introduce Giacomo Chiesi to our podcast. Giacomo is a highly accomplished business leader. He is the head of global rare diseases at the Chiesi Group, where he leads a team in the development and marketing of treatments for rare and ultra-rare diseases. Chiesi is a global pharmaceutical company headquartered in Parma, Italy. It is a family-owned enterprise in an industry not known for many family businesses. Chiesi entered the acromegaly space when the company recently acquired Ireland-based Emirate Pharma, which marketed the acromegaly oral drug Mycapsa. Chiesi is a fascinating company, not only dedicated to rare diseases, but also, as you will learn, a company with an unrelenting focus on forward-thinking business practices. We talked at length about their initiatives and position on social responsibility, patient centricity, and environmentally sustainable practices. We are truly delighted to bring this podcast of my chat with Giacomo to you. We caught up with him a few weeks ago in their Boston office. Here's our chat. Giacomo, thank you so much uh, for inviting me to, uh, to your offices in Boston. It's great to see you. I know we've talked a few times, and I'm very excited about this podcast. And I've been reading a little bit about the history of Chiesi, and it's a fascinating story. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your family and how the, the company got started, and uh, what does it feel like to look back at right. your grandfather and and uh, and now see the work that you're doing? How does how how does that feel? It must be fascinating. Sure. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on your podcast, JD. I really appreciate uh, you coming all the way to Boston to visit us, and just love to spend the time together with you today. Thank you. That's great. Very much appreciate to be on yeah. the podcast today and give our perspective on a few things. So, yeah, you're right, Casey is a family business. It was set up by my grandfather, and I have his first and last name, right? Yeah, so he was, so he was grand Grandpa Giacomo also. That's exactly right. Um, so, yeah, and he set up the company in 1935. He was a chemist by trading and somebody who really loved to help other people. And so he decided at some point that um, he wanted to throw himself into chemistry, so he bought a lab, a lab for the equivalent of a few dollars. I think it was $9. The lab was in Parma, which is a mid-sized mm-hmm. city in northern Italy, and that's still where the company is headquartered, almost 90 years, because, um, uh, yeah, it was set up in 1935. Um, so if you look back, you know, the company had some struggles at the beginning. Um, it's initial what year was that? that when he, you said... Th- 1935. 35, so... Yeah. Issues in Europe at that time. That's exactly right. Matter of fact, uh, as you know, World War II took place, yeah. and the company was actually bombed during the war. Uh-huh. I think it was 1944. And uh, and so then Giacomo bought some land um, thereafter and decided to rebuild the company and actually built a small manufacturing plant uh, and launched uh, or relaunched the company with about 50 employees in 1955. And he started out by producing a penicillin ointment. That's how he started out. Mm. 
And um, you know, the company grew a little bit, and then in 1966, um, he left the company to his two kids, which would be my dad and my uncle, respectively, my dad Paolo and my uncle Alberto, who took on, um, with a lot of courage, and took on researching new solutions for patients um, in a lot of different areas, but then pretty rapidly they decided to converge uh, on pulmonary diseases. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so flash forward uh, uh, several years, um, you know they, they were very very good at making the company grow and um, and extending it into different areas as well as entering new geographies and then in the 90s the company branched out of Italy and entered uh, some new geographies I think the first geography we entered was Brazil, Brazil. historically okay. Italy had a lot of connections with mm-hmm. Brazil and Latin America and we branched uh, out into Europe so we entered France uh, um, Spain Germany and so on right so by uh, the first you know 2000s the company was basically um, sort of a multinational company, if you yeah. want, but primarily European. And then about 10 years thereafter, um, we were also able to expand to other geographies, important countries such as the United States uh, and China. And then in the last few years, uh, we also we were also able to set up our own local offices uh, in additional countries, including Australia, uh, Japan, and Canada. So now the company has 7,000 employees, and uh, we are present in about uh, 30 different countries directly, but we commercialize our products in uh, more than more than 90 countries right now. Um, in the 90s, uh, the third generation of, uh, of the family started uh, taking an active uh, role yeah. in the company when my sister and my two cousins uh, decided to join the business. Um, my story is a little different, we'll get into that later, yeah. I, I suppose. Um, but today the company takes a lot of pride in continuing to put the patients put patients first. Uh, we spend more than half a billion every year in research activities. And we're focused, as I said at the beginning, we're focused on certainly on large pulmonary conditions such as asthma and COPD, but also for tre- on treatments for premature babies and more recently also on treatments for rare diseases such as acromegaly mm-hmm. and a few others. I think what really sets us apart as a family that runs a business, you know, there are three things. The first one is that, and they all come from my grandfather, I suppose, right? So the first one is- His vision. Right, right. So his vision was to help others. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he wanted us to be humble and continue to foster a strong connection with the local community and be close to people. He also wanted us to be pragmatic and be frugal on solutions. If you can improve uh, tangibly and provide something, you know, tangible for the patients without spending a whole lot of money, why is that not a priority for you? Sure. Right. And then lastly, you really focus on, uh, you know, making solutions uh, tangible and making them get to patients quickly, mm-hmm. if, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah. So, the, you know, the, the vision has always been to, you know, teach our kids what it means to help others and to do so by putting the priority of other people, you know, including patients, before our own personal priorities. So I'm, I'm interested in your perspective as you've seen your family from, I'm assuming you met, you met your grandfather. Of course, yes. Yeah, and uh, how you see that evolving over the years and uh, from the the... the from understanding his vision, uh, how, how do you take all of that and as you're running your, the company today, right. how does that translate uh, and, and how has it evolved? 
Right. So, you know, a few things have, a lot of things have changed, yes, right? Yes, of course. Um, and then a few fundamental tenets have stayed the same. The vision itself has clearly changed over time because the family has adapted the vision to the changing circumstances of the world. Of course, right? yeah. And, and of care. You can't say static. Right, no. that's exactly right. Yeah. Matter of fact, we've actually been very dynamic over the course of different generations. Yeah. Um, well, and I think, you know, when you think about that, that's one of the things that make successful companies. Right. Success, the ability to adapt and the fluidity of the changes. Right. And how you adapt to those, the needs right. and, yeah. That's exactly right. And I think what the overall, you know, that the family is bringing and has brought about to the company, which is really what sets us, sets us apart, is the orientation to the long term. So on the one hand, you have to muster the ability to change and adapt to the new circumstances and in fact anticipate some of the new trends in, in care and the, emer the new emerging patient needs, but at the same time maintain that orientation to the long term, right? Yes, of course. So the sense that we can be useful to a lot more people as the company grows, uh, the concept that we can become a global universal endeavor that can help a whole lot of people that's something that was not existing at the beginning yeah. but that's a realization that you know we're very pragmatic people yeah. and so that realization didn't come until relatively recently when yeah. we realized that we could actually grow and this is why we lately have also decided to become a benefit corporation and a yeah let's, let's talk about that a little bit uh, the the because that's very interesting in the pharma uh, space right where you're not a corporation, you're a corporation, but you're a, a B Corp. Why don't you explain a little bit what that is and then tell us how did you decide to do that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so B Corps are, to be clear, they're for-profit companies, right? So we're not talking about philanthropy, yes. right? Just to put it out there. It's not a, non, a 501c3. That's exactly right. It's yeah. not a 501c3. Yeah. Uh, B Corps, however, are a different kind of company. Um, B Corps are companies that work with a non-governmental organization named B Lab to get a specific certification. What the certification, the certification is just a symbol, yes. right? Um, but what it stands for is something very relevant. B Corps are companies that put the interests of society and of the environment at the center of everything that they do. And at the same level of the interest of the shareholders and the investors in the company. Therefore, they have to sort of forget the, the, the historical capitalistic perception that everything is centered around returns, right? Returns are an important concept, but the question is, to whom do the returns go, right? Yeah. And so we have embraced the concept that if we are long-term oriented, we have to put the interests of society and those of the environment and the planet together with our own interests, mm -hmm. right? And look at the prosperity of the company on par with uh, the advantage that we bring to the planet as well as uh, that of society. So as a B Corp, so let me take a step back. So Kies decided to become a B Corp uh, between, I want to say 2017 and 2018. That's when we made the realization that we wanted to go for the B Corp certification. And in 2019, we got our first certification, which was renewed in 2023 or I'm sorry, 2022, and, um, and then we're gonna get our next certification in 2025, hopefully, fingers crossed, right? The process is pretty robust and it's very rigorous. And as I mentioned, we work with B-Lab, which is a non-governmental organization that 
comes to the company and uh, looks at our processes to make sure that we really put patients, uh, planet, and uh, society at the center of everything mm-hmm. we do. And this has ramifications uh, uh, on our processes as well as, uh, as our decisions. I'll give you a couple examples to make this pragmatic, right? So, for example, we track our greenhouse gas emissions. Oh, interesting. On an annual basis. And we have a specific carbon budget that we respect every year that actually is included as an objective for our our employees and our management. And we actually try to reduce that carbon budget over time with the objective of becoming carbon neutral by 2035. Mm. For a pharmaceutical company, it's tough to go carbon neutral because we actually use a lot of energy. You know, pharmaceuticals. To manufacture. That's exactly right. Yeah. You know, we have three manufacturing plants: uh, one in Italy, one in France, one in Brazil, and we use a lot of energy to do that, as well as in, you know, in our research activities as well. Um, but we try to decarbonize. Additionally, every year, we dedicate several days to the so-called We Act days. Um, in a We Act day, our employees. Uh, take their day off, it's a fully paid day. So we right? act, ACT, act. That's exactly yeah, right. Yeah, okay. That's exactly yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's cool. Uh, and by the way, act for us means actively care. Yeah, to do something. Right. And it means ACT, actively care for tomorrow. Oh, great. Right? Yeah, so yeah. it's that long-term orientation, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, And so our people go and serve the local community. Um, I've done it myself as well, you know, either by preparing meals for low-income families or, I don't know, cleaning public structures, jazz parks, and so on, right? And we have several of these days in many different cities because Chiesa as a company has about, I mentioned, you know, 30 different offices. So yeah. we'll have WEAC Day in Paris, a WEAC Day in uh, Hamburg, Germany, or a WEAC Day in Boston, Massachusetts, yeah. and so on, right? Yeah. So that everyone gets involved and we try to make a difference in, you know, for society as well. Um, we also try to make uh, a very deliberate and explicit endeavor to try and be very transparent with our governance. You know, who sits on the board, uh, how does the board make decisions, uh, and just be very transparent with yeah. those type of processes, yeah. right? And all this is required to be a B Corp. But I also want to backtrack a second and, and, and give you the reason why we decided to be to yeah, become that's, a B Corp. Yeah, right? yeah, that's a conscious decision. Right. The board makes it say, this, this is better for the company than that. Right, that's exactly yeah. right. So. If you want to be long-term driven, and if you really want to make a difference, you want that difference to be important and relevant. You don't want it to be just for a single family. As I mentioned, we want to be a family for families, a mm-hmm. family that's close to the community, that's close to people, right? Because of that, you need to take things seriously and be able to measure yourself and measure the impact you have on the community and on other important stakeholders such as the planet. Yeah. And for us, for you to do that, the best way to, to do it is, is to just you know, join or you know, be audited, if you want, by an external, unbiased uh, third-party organization like B-Lab mm-hmm. and, and go from there. Yeah. So we have very specific key performance yeah, so it's not just to It's not just to say you do something, it's right. to actually do it. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Matter of fact, a couple of years ago, we went out with a campaign that was called Actions mm-hmm. Over Words, precisely because we don't limit ourselves to words, but we are very explicit about translating those words as soon as possible into actions to actively make a difference. Yeah. So as you can see, there's a lot of things that have taken place uh, 
in, uh, the company, the company has come a long way, you know, from 1935, you know, yeah. we started with uh, the equivalent of $9 and now the company has 7,000 employees. Yeah. But the core fundamental tenets of being humble, frugal, providing tangible solutions uh, and being long-term oriented, it's still there. Nothing has changed. It's all unchanged and intact, if that makes sense. Can you, can you imagine what your grandfather would say if he could see the company now? Have you ever thought of that? I thought about it, <laughs> and, and um, look, he passed when I was 15, so okay. I did get to know him yeah, quite yeah. a bit, but not as well as I would have liked to. Yeah. I think he would say, you guys did great, but it's certainly not enough. <laughs> you should go out there yeah. and uh, continue to challenge yourselves, uh, continue, continue to challenge our own bureaucracy, uh, whatever slows us down, uh, the complications that we create instead of, instead of resolving yeah, them. Yeah, the simplicity of... Things. Right, yeah. exactly. That's very Italian, by the way. I know, suppose, to simplify. Right? Doesn't, don't you think? I, th I think so. I don't mean to generalize. <laughs> no, no, but no, yes. but I mean, yeah. yeah. And, you know, the passion of, of bringing great solutions, yeah. of designing solutions that make sense for people, that's for sure yeah. part of our yeah. culture. I would also say that the company is and remains Italian. We're incorporated mm -hmm. in Italy, right? But at the same time, the, co the, the company culture has evolved into... Uh, really a cosmopolitan culture where we're able to embrace diversity and, and we want that absolutely yeah. because we appreciate how much um, you know um, additional wealth of, of culture and understanding bringing more people with different cultures brings to the company well and the inter interconnectivity of the world it right not demands it but I mean people that truly understand how to take advantage of that right it's so much better for the world and people and everything that you do so it's a fascinating thing, and I'm, I'm so uh, glad that you agreed to talk a little bit about your family, but sure. let's talk a little bit more about um, your decision to go into rare diseases, and specifically acromegaly. As you know, our publication um, is specialized in pituitary disease, so, so I'm interested in that. How do you, how you thought of that, or how did it evolve into, sure. into rare diseases? Because it's not... From the layperson, it's not an easy space to be. Yep. Uh, it's difficult, it's expensive, you know, all of the, yeah. the, the things that come with it. No, I agree. It. It, it's, not a, it's not a simple decision. It's not to be taken for granted. Uh, um, I, I completely agree. So let's start from, from the top, right? So we're a family business and we're a B Corp. Yeah. Right? So what that means is that we orient our actions towards sustainable development goals, right? We want every single action that we, we, we partake or endeavor in to actually make a difference for society. So we orient ourselves uh, um, around uh, the, sust the 17 sustainable development goals which are included in the United Nations Charter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to talk to you a little bit about we can, uh, if you want to uh, talk about that because the sustainability part of your. I was reading on the website. Right. It's very, very interesting how you thought of that and how incorporated into your company's DNA. Right. W would you like to let's spend a little time on that? Yeah. No. Absolutely. Yeah. So. I think there is a lot of uh, uh, different things that we do to be sustainable as a company, and I'll give you, you know, perhaps the. the a couple examples, but perhaps the best example is exactly why we decided to engage in, in rare diseases, right? So yeah, so there's a sustainability thing that drives 
the, the, the decision to go into rare disease. That's exactly right. Yeah. So if you look at those 17 sustainable development goals, uh, you'll find a lot of different things, right? And, and some, of, some of the goals are more relevant for other organizations than a pharmaceutical organization, right? But one of those is, for example, to provide a, a great place for your employees where they can not only pursue their career, uh, careers, but also you know, be well. And so the well-being of your employees is something that's actually assessed by B-Lab, the non-governmental organization that we work with, uh, to continue to recertify ourselves mm-hmm. as a B Corp. Yeah. So we go to great lengths to make sure that our people understand that we support them and we want to provide to them an inspiring, very good, very solid place where they can express their full potential as individuals, right? Yeah. That's one example. Another example, if you take a look at, at uh, sustainable, sustainability development goal number three, is uh, it basically says health for all at all ages. Okay, so it's a very profound, very powerful statement. Yeah, very simple, but very profound. That's exactly right. Yeah. Simple and straightforward, and, and it's it's you know it has a lot of complex repercussions if you take it seriously as we try to do. So in the context of Chiesi being a family business and a benefit corporation and a B Corp, uh, we decided to take that sustainable development goal number three to heart uh, and we asked ourselves, uh, if we want to pursue health for all at all ages, what does it mean in terms of the rarity of the disease? Should we discriminate against patients just because there is a small market, because these patients are few and there's a low prevalence of the disease or even a low incidence Mm -hmm. of the disease? We think there's an opportunity there. There's an opportunity to develop new therapeutic solutions for patients with rare conditions because not many companies focus on that. There's a lot of companies that focus on much larger diseases, but very few take the interest of rare disease patients to heart. And then additionally, that sentence says, at all ages, health for all at all ages. Right, so we should also not penalize patients because of their age. And in particular, pediatric diseases, or actually rare diseases tend to be, uh, at least in 75% of the cases, uh, they tend to be monogenic. Oh, I'm sorry, not monogenic, genetic, genetic right? Yeah. And for a genetic disease, you can, you can expect that at some point uh, there will be an onset, and in a lot of these cases, the onset will take place in the pediatric age, which yes. means that we so shouldn't penalize these kids just because they have an onset in their first years of, of their lives right, and, yeah. and then at the same time um, because they have a very uh, you know very unknown disease that no one has ever studied right yeah. so for us it was that impetus that led us to say let's make a difference for people who have a neglected condition that no one cares about where we can bring with a lot of humbleness tangible solutions as quickly as possible to the patients. So we connected that sustainable development goal with really our values of being humble, Mm -hmm. being tangible and pragmatic, and uh, being frugal. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So more specifically, uh, if you think about rare diseases in and of itself, uh, we think there's a lot of opportunities for us as a company. Don't get me wrong, there's opportunities and there's barriers right, uh, in rare diseases, and we, we can talk about that. Yes, I agree with you. Uh, drug development in rare diseases is, is 
complicated to say the least and right. and absolutely we could use more attention to more rare diseases so people get the therapeutic solutions that they need and the right. drugs they need uh, so uh, what how do you see these this um, uh, space, let's say, yeah. the rare disease space moving and the, the types of opportunities that you see and where are the barriers? Sure. Uh, how do you see that? So I'll tackle opportunities first. Okay. Right. And, and when we speak about opportunities, uh, I think it's important that we also talk a little bit about the enablers that um, are out there for companies to actually get interested first and foremost in uh, in getting new products to or new therapeutic solutions uh, uh, to uh, people with the rare disease so, so by, that you, by that you mean you first have to the enablers are the ones that are te the telling people where these problems are or right you, yeah so it's about finding them right yeah that's that's exactly right so one of the opportunities there is that there's very little that's known about many of these diseases. Some are better known than others for sure, um, but generally speaking, uh, there's a lot of awareness that, that we need to continue to build for, for rare diseases. So I'll take a step back. Um, there are roughly 7,000 mm -hmm. known rare diseases and counting because that number goes up by the day. And yes. new diseases are described in the literature almost on a weekly basis, literally, right? So yeah. that's how... Uh, important uh, and how big of a societal issue this is, right? 7,000 rare diseases. 95% of these diseases have no approved therapy. So you appreciate that there are over seven, I'm sorry, 6,000 diseases that, you know, for, for which patients have very little to no hope, right? Yeah. So that's a, a daunting problem. Right. Yeah. <laughs> when, you, when you think about it, right. the, 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 the size of it. Right. And they impact a lot of people. You might think rare diseases impact a few people, but collectively, in the United States, uh, uh, statistics tell us that anywhere between 25 and 30 million people are impacted. Yeah. In Europe, the number is similar. And overall, on a global basis, uh, statistics tend to oscillate a little bit. The range is around 400 million people that um, have a rare disease on a global basis. Yeah. So it's a huge and mad societal need. And as a B Corp, if you put society and its interest on par with your interest, you gotta do something. Yeah, you can't right. ignore that. Number. Right, you can't exactly. ignore it, right. So continuing to, to research diseases and spread awareness of the you know some of the new discoveries in terms of the description of the disease, the description of the symptomatology of the disease, the new opportunities from a therapeutic standpoint, all these awareness uh, d deserves to be worked on. And, and it's a huge societal opportunity, not just for the patients and the families, but for the entire community, including the medical community, which is obviously very important as a stakeholder for yes. us. So bringing more knowledge to physicians, to patients, and, and to their families is of fundamental importance if we are to seriously tackle the societal issue of rare diseases. The other huge opportunity that we have is to listen to patients and, and families and, and their needs, to continue to embed the feedback in the design of our clinical trials, uh, in the actual design of the molecule and of the therapeutic solution, mm -hmm. as well as the provision of services around uh, 
the, the solution, the therapeutic, the pharmacological solution per se, and services that can help uh, you know, people's lives and make a difference. So these are some of the opportunities. And going back to your question about enablers, you know, some good enablers um, are really out there and they need to be preserved in the future. Uh, some of these enablers are really enablers that allow uh, the protection of innovation Mm-hmm. Such as the orphan drug designation, yeah. right? Huge, huge legislation. Right. Yeah. Um, so it, it was very, very important, right? It was a legislation that was pa- passed in 1984 in yeah. the United States and only in, in year 2000 in Europe, but it has made a whole lot of difference. Um, so many well, products. Well, it just focuses people's attention and it gives them a right. roadmap to say, here's, here's a way to do this. Right. Yeah. And it provides a solid, important uh, financial incentive yeah. uh, for organizations because in the United States, you're provided with seven years of uh, granted exclusivity, so no one can copy your product, yeah. even though if you even if you don't have any patents. Mm-hmm. And in Europe, you get 10 years. But there are other financial incentives, such as tax advantages, uh, as well as, for example, the priority review voucher, which is the simple document that you get from the FDA that allows... Uh, a company to expedite the review cycle and it, it can be transferred from company to company yeah. and for a certain financial amount and all that money is going to get reinvested at least that's for sure the, care, the, the case for Chiesi, right? All of that money gets reinvested in research and development for uh, new therapeutic new thing, solutions yeah. for people impacted by, by rare diseases. So you're constantly looking at discovery right? and looking at the, do you have a solution for this? How does that work? Do you look at the, the disease state first or the need and then go hunt for for a solution or do you have this group of solutions that is, we're working on these these new you know, uh, development sort of discovery ideas right. and, and does that, oh, this may fit this this disease. How does, how does that work? Right, so, so it's a fascinating question yeah. and it deserves a bit of a conversation because it's a complicated topic. Yeah. Um, so you have to look at the intersection between the biotechnology you work on, so the, the modality, right? What kind of molecule are you working with? Yeah. Right? Are you working with um, a complex molecule such as a recombinant protein <clears throat> or an enzyme or a, a monoclonal antibody? And, and so these are complicated molecules that get expressed by cellular banks. And so that, that's a certain type of technology. Um, the more traditional technology that's used in pharmaceuticals is m- essentially chemical synthesis or mm-hmm. medicinal chemistry, right? Where molecules are essentially synthesized via relatively simple chemical processes, right? Um, and then, as we've seen over the last 10, 15 years, uh, we're now looking at much more sophisticated modalities, uh, such as genetic therapies, uh, as well as uh, RNA-based therapies, uh, and cell therapies and so on, right? So you gotta take a look at that into consideration. You gotta take that into consideration. Yeah, yeah. So as a company, we're a mid-sized company. You're, you know, we're not a large company, so we gotta be very selective sure. with the things that we do because we want to maximize the opportunity of taking a new solution yeah. to, to the people. So you gotta intersect that with the, uh, the conditions. We, right now, we focus on those small molecules that I mentioned that are generated via um, simple chemical processes and uh, also on recombinant enzymes as well as uh, proteins. When it comes down to the conditions, uh, we have made a very deliberate and explicit choice uh, of focusing on diseases 
or conditions that have a low prevalence where we are either the only company doing research or we can show a significant benefit mm -hmm. for the patients. And so that's you're not, in other words, you're not wheel spinning. You're right. Just, you have a very that's exactly right. Road, a roadmap well defined to get to, uh, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Right. So we focus on neglected diseases or, or neglected conditions where we can make a difference because we can show better efficacy, better convenient, such as an oral therapy compared to an injectable treatment, uh, or better safety. As I said, we're a small company compared to many other companies, so the difference we can make in, in rare conditions is in those small populations, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But to your point, uh, we never wheel spin. We don't want to recreate drugs that already exist, right? Yeah. So let's talk a little bit then about the barriers. Sure. You see, in, 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 in this area. What, are, what, are the, what keeps you up at night, I guess it's a good question. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of things that keep me up at night. Yeah, and, I um, can imagine. But, but I, I tend to sleep relatively well That's the good. days that I you know, meet people like you and uh, the days that we get approval yeah, by the EMA or the FDA for a new solution, then we bring it to the patients. Yeah. And, um, and you know, my days are made by, my professional days, I suppose, are made by my meetings with the patients and, and their families. Yeah. But in terms of the barriers, there's a lot of them, right? I'll focus on, on just two of them because I think that these two that I'm gonna mention are the ones that have the, 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 more outs the most outsized impact on, on people. Mm -hmm. The first one is money or yeah. funding, and the second one is time. On funding, um, you know, there's a lot of money that's required to progress programs. Um, the scarcity of funding is an issue for the market right now. Yeah. Uh, over the last 12 to 18 months, we have seen that the, the biotech market has really lost a lot of liquidity given the um, increase in the interest rates by the um, central banks. Uh, a lot of investors have decided to turn their shoulders uh, um, to biotech and uh, move to um, lower risk opportunities. Mm -hmm. There has been a real capital flight away from uh, biotechnology. That's not good. No, and, and unfortunately, what we're seeing right now is that there's a lot of companies strapped for cash, and so they're merging with one another to preserve the little, little money that they have. They don't, they don't need two leadership teams, they yeah. only need one, and so they're gonna save some of that sure. cash and devote it to clinical trials, which yeah. makes sense, but it's unfortunate because a lot of programs get shelved right yes. now, and they're not gonna progress. Yeah. But Funding is also an issue for PAs, generally speaking. Collectively, there never is enough money to pursue science at the same time to develop therapies for uh, 7,000 rare diseases, right? So um, for us, you know, we are an affluent company with uh, revenues of, of, of our own that can sustain 7,000 employees at the company in a lot of countries, and of those 7,000, 850 working research and development, mm. but still, we have to continually prioritize based on uh, the, the, the opportunity that we have. You know, how good is that molecule? How fast can we progress that molecule? And how fast can we get to know the molecule better before being able to take it to a regulatory authority and then to the people if, yeah. it, in fact, it gets approved? So that constant prioritization is a matter of discipline. But at the same time, it's it's so unfortunate that we can't progress faster. Know, yeah, 
and, and, and in parallel with 7,000 different opportunities yeah. For, yeah. for the people. So to your point, uh, time is the other issue. It takes a long time, typically 10 years or more, to develop new products for rare conditions from scratch to the first approval, right? And in a lot of cases, the issue here is that patients can't wait that long while the condition is progressing. Yeah, yeah. A, lot of the, a lot of rare conditions are, as I mentioned, genetic. So their onset takes place relatively early in the person's life. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these conditions uh, tend to progress very quickly. And so a lot of families uh, will not be able to withstand the test of time. It yeah. takes a long time. And, um, it might be too long. For, yeah, for yeah. Those are those are two huge barriers, really. And uh, is it getting better? No. With I mean, uh, the the funding yeah. issues go come and go. You're exactly right. Markets, yes. uh, you know, dynamics. But uh, the time. Do you see an improvement, uh, at least in the willingness, the uh, approving authorities, or uh, we to, do to move yeah. more efficiently to, for solutions. I I I feel that maybe from the outside a little bit that there is a lot more of that positive going on than there is not. Yes, I agree with you. We're seeing that positive spin, yeah. that positive evolution. A number of years ago, for example, the um, EMA decided to pass the uh, prime pathway law. We're, we're basically, if you're a company and you're developing a, a new therapeutic solution for a disease that doesn't have any approved therapies, uh, you're going to be able to have a specific special privilege access yeah. to the EMA and be able to go on a rolling submission and submit your data as soon as you can and then progressively add data. And you also have um, you know, unblocked feedback from them from mm-hmm. the perspective that you can go and obtain their advice. It's called the scientific advice procedure whenever you want, right? So that's great. In the United States, there's a different program. It's called Accelerated Approval. It's also applicable in cases where you don't have um, a, a sufficiently good, I suppose, therapy. Mm-hmm. So there might be a therapy that's out there for the patients as well, but you might have a therapy which is an improvement or just a different therapy for the same condition. And in that case, you might be able to get an approval only after conducting one study, the so-called phase one or phase two study, yeah. and then get an approval, uh, bring the product to the people, while at the same time you do a confirmatory study post-approval. Yeah. Right? So th- these are very positive changes that have taken place in the regulation in the last 10 years. Yeah. We think that these changes are absolutely, they are not positive for society and for people with rare conditions, and we absolutely believe that they should be preserved as much as yeah, possible. Yeah, and that seems to be the trend. Yes, yeah, yeah. for the time being, yes. Yeah. So we talked about why you got into rare diseases. Yeah. And within rare diseases, uh, uh, you know, our audience is obviously interested in the pituitary world. So, so let's talk about your decision to bring acromegaly into the family of rare diseases that you guys are working with. So how did that happen, and and um, how how is it going? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So it it happened via an acquisition, and yeah. it's going very very well. So. Um, acromegaly is, is, is for us a, a new area, right? So we're still in, in the learning phase, but it's a condition that we have tracked for a relatively long time. 
Okay, so you you were very aware of the the, the unmet needs and, yeah. and those issues. Yeah, ab yeah, absolutely. So I would say you know perhaps not very aware. Yeah, yeah. But but it was on the radar. It, it definitely was on the radar screen for us. So historically, what happened was that um, we got into Acromegaly via, as I mentioned, via an acquisition. In April 2023, Casey completed the acquisition of a company named Emirate that uh, used to be based in his base in, in Dublin, Ireland, yeah. which has a therapeutic solution for Acromegaly. The reason why I was saying that Acromegaly has been on our radar screen for some time is the following. Emirate um, previously, I believe in 2020, if I'm not mistaken, uh, maybe it was 2021, took over another company uh, named Kayasma, mm -hmm. right? And we actually were in touch with Kayasma back in the day before the Amrate acquisition, and we knew about their their um, their solution, their, their product, right? So we had looked at it, we had looked at Acromegaly, um, but never, never decided to make a move, yeah. right? So when we closed the acquisition of Amrate, again, about several months ago, about eight months ago, we, we looked at Acromegaly for the first time, which is why we're still in the learning phase. But we felt it was very, how can I put it, very consistent with what we do. As I mentioned, we focus on conditions uh, for which, you know, there are opportunities to really make a difference in the lives of people and conditions that uh, are very rare and that have a very low prevalence or a low prevalence. In the case of Acromegaly, we think that there is a, a lot of uh, significant unmet medical needs, right? Um, in the case of acromegaly, one of the issues, well, the, the primary issue that you have is typically that you have a macroadenoma, so a tumor, mm -hmm. um, in, uh, in, in close proximity to your pituitary gland, and because of mechanical compression of the gland, uh, um, you know, you'll start producing or overproducing growth hormone, mm -hmm. right? So the good news for the patients, as you know, is that surgery is um, a resolution mm -hmm. for a lot of the patients. We, as I mentioned, we don't we don't know this this condition that well, but we're we're learning. And, and by the way, one of the reasons why we're learning very fast is because we have been able to maintain a lot of the Amrit team on board yeah. with, with Chiesi, and and we're making a very deliberate effort. To, with every acquisition that we do, we make a very deliberate effort to maintain the know-how and the expertise yeah, exactly. uh, of the people, right? If a company has been so successful that you decided to acquire it, it's, it's worthwhile keeping the people, right? So for about two-thirds of the patients, surgery represents a good solution, um, but it's only two-thirds, right? So l let's look at those two-thirds, right? Um, in, in that case, uh, a lot of patients uh, go through the surgery, but there's a lot of complications scheduling the surgery. So much so that in many cases, patients, you know, it can take up um, to a few, if not several months, to be able to schedule that surgery. Mm -hmm. It's either because the physician is busy or because the center is busy or because the patient has to get their life in order before, yeah. before going through, uh, through that. Um, but for some patients, and it's about a third of the patients, you know, either because they don't want to go through the surgery or because it's not recommended uh, or because the surgery is not a complete resolution for them, um, they have continuing issues, so to say, yeah. right? And so, or residual. Right, mm -hmm. residual issues, yeah. right? That's, that, that's exactly right. And, and, and so, you know, people will need to be on several treatments even post-surgery including injectable treatment, mm -hmm. right? 
So the challenge with um, some of the existing treatments uh, uh, for acromegaly is that injections can be very painful. Mm -hmm. right? um, they require patients, in many cases, to travel to um, the injection site or the infusion site, which might be a hospital or a clinic, uh, which might be even far away from patient, where patients live. And in many cases, patients um, have uh, injection uh, reactions yes. or infusion-related reactions. The injectable treatments are great for patients, generally speaking, because they represent the standard of care. Um, the, the, the slight disadvantage, which is an opportunity there, is that these treatments are typically given every few weeks, and patients, in some cases, might experience symptoms in between injections. These are the so-called breakthrough symptoms. Yes, right? yeah, definitely. We hear about that all the time. Um, definitely, yeah. And, and you know this better than me, right? But uh, um, you know, towards the upcoming injection, when it's been a few weeks, when you had your last injection, some patients might experience uh, joint pain, swelling, sweating, headaches, um, fatigue. Yeah, the, sim the symptoms come up as the as the strength of the shot right. diminishes. Yeah. Right. And so you know, it is great when. Uh, you know, you, you can combine perhaps, you know, one day will come when, you know, we'll be able to combine different treatments and mm -hmm. be able to provide a continued, um, you know, um, sort of biochemical as well as symptoms control for, yeah. for the patients. But for sure, we do we do see a lot of opportunity there. The the other aspect here that I would, uh, that, that I'd like to focus on is some of the things we'll be working on in, in the future yes, yeah, as well, that, I right? was going to ask you about that. That's interesting. So, as we said, you know, the, the, there are challenges here in terms of the treatment per se, but the challenges are, are opportunities as well, right? Um, and so for us, an opportunity is an opportunity if it's an opportunity for a person with acromegaly, mm -hmm. right? So in terms of the treatment, th there are a few opportunities here that we see. The, the first one is that there has been a pretty dramatic evolution in the pharmaceutical marketplace with uh, uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists, mm -hmm. which are these very interesting, it's these very interesting new class of products, uh, which I think the first one was approved uh, maybe 10 years ago now, and so they've become uh, the mainstay um, in, uh, in, in Treatment for the treatment of diabetes, yes, right? and and obviously the diabetes tends to be a relatively frequent comorbidity with uh, with acromegaly. So one question is, what is the interaction between these new drugs and some of the uh, drugs that are some of the therapeutic alternatives uh, that are already included in the um, in in the armamentarium for acromegaly, yeah. such as actriotide, right? So that might be something that. Could be studied in the future and something that we're looking at with uh, with interest. Interesting. Um, the the other opportunity for the patients is that uh, we we have an oral medication, right? And we also know of uh, other oral medications which are being developed uh, by other companies in the pipeline, which is great for patients. And so over time, we hope that patients will have an opportunity to be on oral treatment uh, and benefit from that convenience then the question at that point becomes um, uh, can you combine different medications, right? Yeah. Um, the, the question is also about uh, uh, the administration, right? If you have uh, a twice-a-day drug, right, um, can you make it a once-a-day drug, right? Uh, 
right? And so yes. that's something that we might be working on in the future. Yeah. There's another opportunity that fascinates me in speaking to a lot of key opinion leaders. Uh, they all recognize that surgery is the standard of care. And as, as we discussed, it's a resolution or a quasi-resolution for a lot of the patients. But the question is, what do patients want to do before going on surgery? Mm -hmm. So that period of time might actually take up to 10, 12 weeks, right? And could you provide a medication to patients in that time frame to maintain the disease under control, the condition under control, as the patient prepares for surgery, mm -hmm. right? So we think there is a, a lot of opportunities here for, for us as a company to continue to uh, work on um, on this condition as yeah. well as on our own uh, therapy. Yeah, yeah, that's terrific. What do you see your company, what do you, what is your, how does your company think about access and where do you see the opportunities for all of us, whether it's us uh, as publishers and amplifiers or advocacy groups, how do you see the opportunities for everybody to work together to try to, to simplify and make the system better for patients? Sure, there are a few opportunities there. Our, our essence is, is that we're a B Corp, and yeah. we're a family business, right? Yeah. And as a B Corp, we have made a very conscious, deliberate choice that we're not gonna leave any patient behind. We don't leave behind any single patient. Yeah. Right? And, and that's complicated to do, right? Um, it's complicated from an economic standpoint, but it's also complicated from sometimes from a legal standpoint uh, where in some countries uh, you can't provide product for free, right? Regardless and completely irrespective of all, circum of all circumstances, our mission is very strong. We believe in it, and in our mission, we have the objective to not leave any single patient behind. So we're committed to providing a stable, uninterrupted supply of product to all patients who, in concert with their physicians, believe that our medications are the best opportunity mm -hmm. for them, right? So we want to make sure that all patients have access. To that end, we have a specifically focused team which we call, uh, it's a patient hub, if mm -hmm. you want, and yeah. we call it Chiesi Total Care. Feel free to Google it. I will. Chiesi yeah. Total Care. This <laughs> is a team of people that assists all patients with all issues of reimbursement, whether you are on an injectable therapy or not, whether you have commercial insurance, uh, whether you are are a Medicare or a Medicaid family, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter, we're gonna be providing you with, with assistance with that. Um, in some cases, our products have co-pays, right? Yeah. Which in the specific case of acromegaly, some of the injectable treatments might not have a copay. So if you're switching from an injectable to an oral, you might find yourself worse off because you're moving from a situation where there is no copay to one where there is a copay. Uh, today, so as I said, we assist everyone, every single patient uh, with their specific situation in navigating the conundrum of, uh, of insurance yeah, in general, yeah, right? Yeah. And when possible, when ad admissible by, by the law, we assist every single patient, mm -hmm. right? Even financially, right? When admissible by the law, yeah. right? Today, we don't have substantial evidence 
that copays are an issue for patients on our medications, right? But if you're a patient and you have a copay, you should reach out to Chiesi Total Care, our patient hub, our patient services team, um, and know that we're gonna be a service and we'll work through it with you together with uh, with our team. Yeah, and that's, that's critical that you mentioned it because we will put on an article for the podcast when we published all of this great discussion that we've been having, we'll put links so people, when people are listening to the podcast, they can link to the, and, and uh, reading the articles, they can link to the, to that website. Right. So those resources need to get out uh, yeah. to people. Yeah. And, and you have my personal word that will continue to work with every single patient yeah. to grant them access. Right. I will say that in some cases, the regulation is terribly complicated. Um, yeah. You know, I, I come from Italy, where the the system is a national healthcare system, so it's relatively straightforward. Yeah. If you're diagnosed, typically you'll receive product. In the United States, the system is more complex. However, the advantage here is that you typically get access much faster yeah. than in Europe. It's not always the case, but yeah. typically it is the case. But the, the disadvantage of this country is that everything is not everything, but when you're dealing with insurance, it's very complicated. Yeah. And I agree with you that the issue is not co-pays. Sometimes what we're hearing that from our you know, clinicians that we work with, and Dr. Blevins, who's my partner on this, he's had issues where the insurance company is making a dis- medical decision, right? rejecting and saying that this, and, and all of a sudden you're not in the you know, insurance business, you're in the medical business. Yeah. And that's an issue, particularly with with uh, uh, diseases like acromegaly where you have to have people that truly understand the diseases and the condition and the f- physiopathology of the right. of the disease to really understand how a patient reacts to certain things right and they having to spend you know inordinate amount of time and resources to uh, to, to fight these decisions at insurance company yes it's, you know it's as, as an advocate, we're concerned about that, and we want we want to do yeah. more. Uh, yeah, and so with Casey Total Care, the service we provide is that we really walk the patient and assist the patient through all the steps with their respective yeah. payers necessary for them to get access to the medication on as much as possible on a, on a free medication yeah. basis, right? Or on a paid, you know, hundred percent paid for by yeah. the insurance company. And so we'll assist with uh, your insurance benefit verification and make sure that you know we get all the data from, uh, from the patient and from the physician and always in a compliant way with you know, full respect of, uh, respect of the regulation dealing with patient health information, right? But we'll work with the physician and yeah. with the insurance company to make sure that they recognize whether our product is not on formulary or whether it is. Yeah. If it's not, We'll work with the insurance company to get our product on the formulary. Once the benefit verification has taken place, uh, to your point, uh, some payers uh, tend to be a bit more problematic than others. And so they'll request physicians to issue a document which is called a prior authorization, where the physician confirms, uh, the diagnosis confirms that this therapy is the most suited, the best suited for the patient at this point and will help physicians always in a compliant way 
um, navigate uh, that that situation as well together with the payers. Yeah, yeah. We have a lot of respect for all the actors uh, in the surrounding system that surrounds the patients and we respect every single one of them. It, it's sometimes the system is complex. Yes. And we want to be a good player and, and help everyone, particularly uh, the, the people with Dacromagaly uh, navigate that, that circumstance to a good outcome mm -hmm. for for everyone. Yeah, and that's not that's that's not an easy thing to do because when the systems are so complex, the solutions are complex too. Yes. and the, what you can do is complex as well. Yeah. So it's not just an, an easy solution. I think that's what we we grapple with trying to understand where to apply, you know, the the pressure or so sort of speed yes. to see if we can have some impact. On, on simplifying things or yeah. to make it more to make it simpler yeah. yeah and to answer your question right what can we can we do all together to make things more straightforward uh, look uh, as a company we know that we're not perfect running a company is a bit like you know walking blind or blindfolded yes. if you want um, if we don't get indications from other people about what we do well, what we don't do well, what we need to change, we'll never become any better, Yeah. right? And so we value feedback, and one of the things that we constantly ask our patients for is, you know, reach out to us via Casey Total Care, let us know what you think of the service. I think we've one of the reasons why we have grown as a company, as an organization, it's because people have taken the time to provide us feedback. Mm -hmm. And we realize that that time will never be given back to them. And so it's enormously valuable. Yeah, right? yeah. That well, time you, you spend to write that form or reach out to the company yeah. um, and so on. Yeah, so why don't you talk a little bit more about that, if you don't mind, how the ways in which uh, you gather this insight for patients, how do, how do you, I know, you know, you've reached out to us and you'd reach out to, the advocacy groups, acromegaly community, and uh, and it would be interesting to get your perspective on 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 Chiesi's, uh point of view on this, and how how do you do that? How do you how do you uh, participate? How do you, how do you get people to participate? Yeah, and how do you get a, a, that patient to seat at the table? Right, and and the first question that that people ask us sometimes is. Uh, what are the pros and cons yeah. of having patients at the table, right? And, and sometimes people ask that question as a provocation, right? And I actually think it's an easy question. There are just pros in involving patients. I, we don't see any cons. No. I personally have never seen any cons yeah. because we're on the side of patients and science. So yeah. we don't see any conflict there, any controversy at all. Uh, we're against restrictions. Uh, for patient access, we're against uh, slow processing bureaucracy, and as I said, we're for an immediate, uninterrupted, and affordable access for all patients, yeah. right? So for us, having or giving patients a seat at the table, it's absolutely fundamental. There's just, there's just pros, right? Um, because otherwise, we wouldn't be able to become a better version of ourselves mm -hmm. as a company. Yeah. So for us to be on the side of patients, we need to listen to them. And we need to do so in two ways. We gotta be patient, and we gotta be continuous. Uh, we, because that's that's how we become uh, a better version of ourselves. One of the issues that we have is that as we grow, we risk getting mired in our own bureaucracy. Tunnel vision, we call it. Right. You know? Yeah. 
Yeah, and we think about that too, even as small as our organization. Is, you know, we think about that all the time. Right. Are we just thinking too close to that. Yeah. Right, and and we can't we can't do that because um, if we get slower, it means it's going to take us much longer to get an opportunity, a new therapeutic opportunity for mm-hmm. the patients, right? Uh, or we might not be able to provide those services that I was mentioning in relation to patient assistance uh, with their respective insurance uh, um, and navigating that that complexity, right? Um, this would mean for us to leave the patient behind, yeah. and and we don't want that, right? No. So the only way we, we can get better is by listening to the patients and understanding clear terms what matters to them and what are the things that we can do better and yeah. how we can resolve it. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of ways that we engage in, um, in, in dialogue with patients. As I said, we do it in a constant way. You know, this podcast is, is a, a very good solid example, in my opinion, of how we do it. Yeah. Right? Um, and even you come in to uh, speak to our team um, you know, today in the next few days and providing your perspectives on um, our limitations, the opportunities that we have, uh, our strengths, and so on, that's very, very valuable. Um, more generally, though, we'll use all channels to get feedback from, from patients. For example, we'll organize advisory boards mm-hmm. where, um, you know, we'll listen to patients. We'll do so periodically with specific focus a specific focus a specific topic and we'll get I don't know anywhere between five and ten patients uh, per advisory board per meeting uh, we'll host them at our offices or an outside location and we'll get we'll engage in a conversation we'll ask a lot of open-ended questions we'll record all the answers we'll go through them critically Um, in in a measured way and we'll try to determine the best course of action Mm -hmm. for us as an organization a critical skill that we're still working on to be completely honest is how do we adjust ourselves in the most efficient in uh, the most uh, expedited the most accelerated way to the patient needs how do we change to accommodate the patient needs better than what we used to do until yesterday yeah right and, and that's a bit of a challenge for us, right? As we grow, it's, it, it's, it's more natural to take more time to make decisions and amendments to yes, your yeah, organization. Sure. But at the same time, we actually want to become faster, right? So it's that tension that uh, makes our job so interesting, in, in my opinion. Yeah. But we yeah, encourage... It seems like it's the two energies pulling away right. from each other when you want to get, get them to, to join, no? Yeah. But we encourage and, and, and want to facilitate interactions between uh, patients, families, um, and ourselves as much as possible. The other thing that we do is when we have interactions with uh, regulatory authorities such as the FDA or the EMA, we typically ask uh, patient advocacy groups to intervene in that conversation. Yeah. Because we admit that we are limited and there's nothing we can do in terms of representing the view of the patient. We're a company. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not. We're not patients. We don't have the arrogance of representing the patient. Yeah. We think that people like you do your job much better than <laughs> we could do your job. And so, you know, please chime in in that conversation with the FDA and with the EMA. Provide your perspective as to what the current limitations are of the standard of care, what the benefits are, and what could be done differently, and yeah. why a specific new medication could make a difference in the lives of perhaps some of the patients, a subpopulation, yeah. uh, or maybe all of the patients. Do you see these regulatory uh, organizations uh, 
getting better at it, at listening? I think there's a lot of difference depending where you go. Yeah. Um, we've seen that the FDA has really come a long way. Mm-hmm. They listen to the patients, they receive a lot of letters, and it's clear that their decisions are influenced by the patients. Yeah. I don't mean to generalize. No, no. But based on our experience. I think you're right, though. Based on our experience and what we've seen, we definitely see that. We, we have seen some of that also in Europe with the EMA. Perhaps not so much, but it might uh, have also been because perhaps we've had less interactions with the EMA mm-hmm. more recently than with yeah. the FDA. Uh, so it might just be a bias of our own experience. But we do see a lot of progress by regulatory authorities yeah. in listening to the patients, th- which we can only laud and commend. Yeah, I think that's a very good trend. And, and it, uh, I've seen, I, since I've been involved in it you know, for 10 years, a little bit uh, longer, it, it, it seems like it's moving in the right direction. Okay, um, so let's just um, change a little bit our discussion. I'm, I, I want to learn a bit, a little more about you, and what made you. Uh, first of all, maybe a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Uh, and uh, what? How did you decide to stay with the family business? Because I'm sure that was not an easy decision. No. That's to continue. Right. So give That's us right. a little bit of a perspective on sure. that. Sure. Yeah. So it's very simple, right? I was born and raised in Italy, and uh, by background, I am an engineer, right? Um, and then I went on to get a master's in business administration from uh, um, U.S. University, University of Chicago. Yeah, um, for me, great school. Yeah, so, and I have a lot of fond memories there. <laughs> um, so, for me, things were pretty simple. You know, I grew up hearing stories from my dad about his everyday challenges developing new therapies without much money and going through the incredible hurdle of getting regulatory approvals uh, in the UK and in Italy, because back then we didn't have the centralized uh, European Medicines Agency, right? It was country by country, so it was every day was an effort. So your dad made it easy for you to be interested in this. Yeah, you know, I I heard this passion, you know, of going through the walls to make a difference uh, uh, for for patients and, and people and to never give up when you're facing a challenge. Um, and so it's that, that notion that stuck with me of uh, transforming the challenge in an opportunity. So I started to become an engineer to understand how to resolve problems. Mm-hmm. And, and I worked actually, you know, upon graduation, I actually decided to uh, now join the family business. And so I actually joined a consulting company and I worked there for several years. Um, and then I went on, as I mentioned, to get my, my MBA, mm-hmm. um, then joined another consulting company. And I learned what it means to have a boss, uh, a non-family boss, yeah. right? And get some, some good feedback, uh, unvarnished feedback, and uh, reporting to, um, to someone else. And uh, I actually worked really, really hard those years. I learned uh, what it means to understand what your fears are and that your fears are your best opportunities. Um, I also understood how you know, when you have something that you fear, you actually have to attack it and, and resolve it. And that's how you master a skill, and that's mm-hmm. how you learn something new. And that's how you become better. Yeah. And so for me, um, the, the decision of working for the family business was never an imposition. Um, there never was anyone who would say to me, It's your uh, time to take right. over, yeah. It was a completely deliberate and conscious choice. Yeah. Uh, and I came to work for Chiesi and joined the family business only when I knew that I would be better able to make a difference in, yeah. in the lives of people. And probably having been an employee helps you manage 
this vast you know company with seven thousand, you have a much bit different perspective than if if you've always been you know a manager or in charge. Yeah, no? so so for sure, and and you know, for clarity, I only manage a small portion of it. Yes, yeah. no, but because I, I lead our, our rare disease business unit, yeah, which yeah. is about seven hundred people. Yeah, now. well, that's still a lot. It's still a lot in rare diseases. You you don't need many many people, right? Yeah. So seven hundred is actually quite a quite a large number. Yes, it is. Um, and it's also uh, you know a testimony on of how uh, fast we're growing and and trying to become global to take mm -hmm. uh, solutions to patients all around the world. But for me, it, it really has been instrumental to um, go on and get a solid business education coupled with that engineering background uh, that helps me sort of understand the problem, you know, break it down into smaller pieces which become more manageable, easy, easier to explain to people um, and easier to convince people to resolve those problems, yeah. right? Because they, they look smaller. Yeah. Um, so all that is, to your point, very instrumental for yeah. me. But it sounds like, you know, regardless of whether you're family or not, it's just such an exciting opportunity uh, when you have the, the moves that you guys made that I think, personally, are very impressive and to think about the DNA of your company and how do you make that work with the needs in rare diseases that they're so huge and it's built into your DNA. It's not just something that you pick up and go. Your your discussion of sustainability and all of that, it, it just makes sense how it comes together. Uh, so you you have children, right? I do. You have kids. I, I, yeah, yeah, I'm married to a wonderful Italian woman and we have three little kids. Wonderful, how old? So they're um, nine, six, and three. Yeah. Uh, the two older ones are girls, and then we have a little boy. Little boy. So my son, well, we have four grandkids. And my son is uh, the one that has three. The youngest one has two girls and one boy. Nice. Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, and uh, grandkids are great. But that's besides the point. So I'm wondering, as I'm listening to you, how how you talk to your kids about how do you, do you ever think about how do you talk about what you do that they get interested and and how to get them interested in the work that you do to someday take over or right. work in the family business? Yeah, so as I mentioned, and I think this, this runs in the family, right? Uh, teaching our kids, what it, our kids what it means to help others and, and to do so by putting the priority. Because your father did that with you right. very clearly. No? Right. Yeah. And I, I, I really think it runs in the family, you mm -hmm. know, the, um, you know, that understatement, that humbleness of uh, not putting yourself first and putting someone else, mm -hmm. uh, someone else's interest first, whether it be a family, a patient, or even society, or even the planet. Right? Yeah, and it's something that is with with our DNA and in our DNA. So. You know, we're not asking our kids to automatically get in the business. At least that's that's not my case. Yes. Um, in my case, it was my deliberate decision, and I found that process of going through that decision, that choice, very very helpful. So, so it happened. Or it happens organically, right? Yeah. When you don't push, you know. So if you were pushed, it would be different. Right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. And and so similarly in the future, I'm not going to push my kids to work in the family business. For, for us, you know, my wife and I will try and, and teach the kids the good values of humility, pragmatism, and altruistically put other people in front of your own interest. My kids will not have an obligation to come work for the, f for the family business. 
Instead, if they will want to work for Chiesi, they'll have to earn it through mm-hmm. uh, you know, a rigorous education and a professional path that will teach them how to overcome their own personal challenges to become useful to other people. That's the bar yeah. they will have. And I think it's a higher bar than the one that we have for our own employees many times. Yeah. But I think it's 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 what you get if you are you have that lucky that you are that lucky you have that luck of being born in in a wealthy family and uh, being born in a healthy family and having an opportunity to really make a difference in in the lives of people and that's how you give back yes that's wonderful teaching well on that note Giacomo I can't thank you enough I know you you're uh, very busy you just flew from uh, Italy today just an hour before we did this so I appreciate you taking the time it's been wonderful and thank you for your time this has been lovely thanks for having me JD I really appreciate it I'm certainly going to continue to listen to your podcast and also to this episode and we'll do many time. more because there's so many things to work on thank Great you time. Giacomo thank, thank you very you so much. much a quick note to remind you not to miss any important information we bring to you if you'd like to receive a notification when we publish articles and podcasts we invite you to register with your email. Simply visit pituitaryworldnews.org and click on the Sign Up for the Latest News button. Remember, social media is not always reliable to bring it to you. Thank you, and thank you for listening. <laughs>